0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From flying to Fitbits to Bitcoin, we look at technology and its energy consumption. Now there's lots of things in our modern world that we take for granted, like flight or some things that have recently appeared in our world like Bitcoin or wearable technologies. All of these need energy and we need to find more and more efficient ways to power these devices that also have less impact on our planet, in particular carbon dioxide levels. When it comes to large emitters of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases, there's one pretty big thing that is part of modern society that we take for granted. That is air travel. Now, even if you haven't been on a plane, a lot of the things that you enjoy, your products that you consume, or goods that you might use, your phone and so on, a lot of these things can be shipped via air transport. And just like that, we also ship things via the ocean, the maritime transportation. And all these different forms of freight, all emit large amounts of CO2, which isn't great news for our atmosphere and environment. So making carbon neutral fuels are pretty much crucial for making aviation and maritime transport sustainable. A carbon neutral fuel is a fuel that in its production process absorbs as much carbon dioxide as it later spits out as part of its emissions. And if we can find a way to make a lot of the normal fuels that we use, which are in general liquid based fuels, if we can find a way to make them in a carbon neutral manner, then that's a huge boon for the planet. Now the reason why we often use liquid fuels, like petrols, oils and so on, other hydrocarbon bases is because they have a very high energy density. For a low weight they provide a pretty cool bang for your buck, which if you're in a plane where every kilogram of weight is incredibly important, we really need to have a good solution for it. So it's not as simple as putting lots of batteries in planes to try and run them off solar power doesn't quite work that way the solar panels and the batteries weigh more than what you need to sort of carry such large payloads not saying that solar panel planes can't be made they do exist but it's just not very efficient at this point in time so having some kind of liquid fuel like maybe kerosene or other hydrocarbons that we use in jet fuels would help us have a really efficient way that is less damaging for the environment of jetting all over the planet So researchers from ETH University in Zurich have developed a pretty cool technique that relies on sunlight and air to help produce liquid hydrocarbon fuels. And they've built an entire power plant, a thermochemical process chain, in real conditions, on the top of the machine laboratory building in Zurich. This is a solar mini-refinery. Now the way in which this little power plant works is it takes CO2, and moisture water from the ambient air around it and using the power of solar energy it creates what's called syngas which is a mixture of hydrogen and carbon monoxide now these two ingredients can be mixed into kerosene or methanol or other hydrocarbons just through a couple of different chemical processes and that's good news because kerosene methanol and other hydrocarbons like that are pretty much exactly what we use right now as part of the global transport infrastructure so they call them drop-in fuels which are almost ready for use now, a lot of this work is headed by Aldo steinfeld who's the professor of renewable energy carriers at eth now, they've developed a whole new research team to prove that carbon neutral hydrocarbon fuels can be made from sunlight and air under real conditions now the reason why they built it on their rooftop is that they wanted to show that you could produce this fuel anywhere in any conditions at the moment the lab in Zurich on the top of their roof is producing one deciliter of fuel per day which doesn't sound like a lot but it's a pretty good for a small-scale reactor and they're building a large-scale one at an existing solar power plant a solar reactor and solar tower, near Madrid. So that is part of the EU's Project Sun 2 Liquid. By building a small scale to prove the technology worked in Zurich, they can then proceed in Spain, which is a lot more sunnier, to build a full-scale system. So how much of these power plants do you need in order to actually get enough fuel to fly all the planes? That's an interesting question. If you think about it, a solar plant that's roughly the size of one square kilometre which could produce around 20,000 litres of kerosene a day. That's pretty powerful stuff, but not a hell of a lot. But theoretically, if you could build a plant the size of Switzerland, or a quarter or a third of the size of the California Mojave Desert, that would give you enough kerosene to fund and supply every plane flying today. Now that is pretty exciting. Of course, building a power plant that large is a lofty goal indeed, but it shows that it is possible to efficiently produce fuels, liquid fuels, that have a minuscule impact on global CO2 emissions. In fact, they're carbon neutral, which would give us a way to keep everything we love about the modern jet setting era without having to worry about damaging our planet. So how exactly does this power plant work? Well, the process chain of the new system combines three existing thermochemical conversion processes. First, you take the CO2 and the water from the air. You extract them out using the solar energy. Then, you take the solar thermal splitting of CO2 and water down into their component molecules. That's pretty useful. And from there, you can have liquefaction of these into hydrocarbons. So the CO2 in the water extract directly from the ambient air, using the kind of typical absorption-desorption process. Then you spit them into a solar reactor, basically a big centre point at the end of a large birra, which gathers all that heat. And you get a concentrating factor of about 3000 degrees of all that solar energy which can heat it up to temperatures of around 1,500 degrees Celsius, right in the centre of that large mirror. And that's enough heat to really power this chemical process to break down, where you split water and CO2 into the component gases, which make syngas. You can then mix this combination of hydrogen and carbon monoxide to produce the typical hydrocarbons that we use in modern world. So this shows a way of generating fuel from just the air around us and the sunlight shows that with some novel thinking adapting to climate change and finding carbon neutral ways of living it doesn't mean abandoning the civilization of the modern world it just means doing things slightly differently in more interesting and carbon neutral ways this is some great research out of ETH University in Zurich another large contributor of CO2 emissions comes from a pretty unlikely source, and something that's really taken a rapid rise over recent years. Now you may be familiar with cryptocurrencies, or such as Bitcoin, these use effectively large computational mathematics to do a lot of number crunching on computers and server farms to generate these unique blockchain keys that they can track and do a number of complicated things for, whether that be from securing transaction records or just from trading and selling as a currency or a platform. Cryptocurrencies have potential some benefits for different areas. For example, having a distributed ledger with simple keys that are not more or less trackable with single transactions is pretty useful for stopping things like money laundering or maybe tracking land transfers but outside of that sometimes the use can be pretty vague and there's lots of speculation which saw the price of Bitcoin rise to incredibly soaring highs and then drop off just as rapidly a bit like the tulip or South Sea bubbles but aside from the fun and games of mining bitcoins there's actually a real significant impact happening on our planet And to understand this, we need to understand how, of course, Bitcoins are generated in the first place. And it involves a lot of complicated calculations, and people use lots of computing power to do this. They set up these server farms, or Bitcoin miners, or mining stations. Basically, just talking up a computer to do a lot of distributed mathematical calculations to try and generate or mine for these Bitcoins. Now, this... Is interesting for computer scientists or any of the people involved in the industry but for people who want to understand climate it's also incredibly important and that's where researchers like Christian Stoll from the Technical University of Munich and also the Massachusetts Institute of Technology now to Stoll and his team they were trying to figure out what is the carbon impact of Bitcoin mining because all these computers have to be running somewhere and especially if they're in large-scale farms And if you look at all of the different cryptocurrencies out on the market by looking at say the stock exchange listings of new coins planned market IPOs and IPO filings you can figure out the market shares of the different companies and different products out there and how much mining is going on so the larger a coin is the more mining is going on to generate the different tokens needed to fund that coin now Some of these use more and less power than others, but it's interesting to look at where exactly all of that power is located. And they estimate, as of November 2018, Bitcoin production annually produces around 46 terawatts of electricity. Now that's a lot of electricity being spat out, used just to produce this crypto or virtual currency. And if you wanna know how much CO2 is emitted as part of this energy generation, That is quite a bit. But to do that, you actually need to associate the companies and the tracking data from all of these pools. And with many of these cryptocurrencies, you can actually see where and where they were published. So they took the IP addresses published by the two largest pool of Bitcoin miners, and they found that roughly 68% of the computing power used to generate cryptocurrencies was coming from Asian countries, 17% in Europe and 15% in North America. Now, they check these by localizing the IP addresses of individual miners using things like the Internet of Things search engine. Once they had these IP addresses, you could match that up to the power generation and carbon intensity of power generation in various countries. For example, one kilowatt of electricity used in Australia and Melbourne has a very different power source to one kilowatt of electricity used in Shenzhen or in Las Vegas or in Hamburg. And at the conclusion of this study, what they found is that Bitcoin alone, out of all of the cryptocurrencies, has a carbon footprint between 22 and 29 megatons of CO2 a year. And if you think about it in real terms, that's about as much carbon dioxide that's spat out by a city like Las Vegas. When you think about all of those lights, all those people living there, and all of those casinos running, Well, that's just as much energy being used to power Las Vegas as it is to power these cryptocurrencies. Now, for everyone who's speculating and being involved in this market and this technology, as it evolves and changes, one of the things that people need to reckon with is the incredible amount of energy used to fuel this. And that energy has to come from somewhere. And it is having a real impact on our planet. So Dogecoin and other joke cryptocurrencies may seem like a laugh, but they all have a large impact on our planet. And until we have more renewable sources of energy, it's going to make it worse and worse and spit out more and more CO2 into our atmosphere. Now this is some great work out of the Technical University of Munich, published in the journal Joule by Christian Stoll and his team. And it just goes to highlight for every new technology, we also need to think big picture about what other impacts we might be having on our planet. of the latest fad in technology burning through huge amounts of energy to another fad in technology potentially producing all sorts of energy. Now wearable tech is a pretty big deal. Companies like Fitbit, And even things like Pokemon Go have helped really raise the profile of wearable technologies and using them to have a fun game, but also health benefits as well. And when we talk about personalized medicine, as we have several times on the show, what comes up is trying to get more and more data about your body and exactly what's happening in it. And for that, we need lots of sensors. But the problem with sensors is, well, they need a power source, and how are you going to power all of these devices, whether it be your Fitbit to your Pokemon Go lanyard? Now, there's something we can use that's got energy and is burning energy all the time, and that is our own bodies. But how do you turn the natural movement of the human body and harvest some of that leftover energy? Well, that's what researchers from Rice University, such as James Tour, have been investigating and they've turned to graphene, like laser induced graphene, LIG, and found ways to make metal-free devices that generate electricity. Now, the whole principle behind this relies on static electricity, much in the same way that rubbing a balloon on your hair makes static electricity, which lifts up your hair, Putting LIG composites in contact with other surfaces produces static electricity and this static electricity can be used to power small devices. Now all of this relies on the triboelectric effect, which is a process with materials gather together through charging via through contact. When you put these materials together and then they're pulled apart, the surface charges build up and you can channel all this build up charge towards some form of power generation. So in experiments, the research connected a folded strip of LIG, this laser-induced graphene, and connected it to a string of light-emitting diodes. And then they found that tapping the strip produced enough energy to make the LEDs flash. Now, a larger piece of LIG embedded with a flip-flop, which is just a transistor, let a wearer generate energy with every step. As the graphene's composite repeated contact with the skin produced enough charge to, to charge up this small capacitor. That's pretty exciting to think about ways to charge and recharge all of these small devices. Because or you have a lot of unnecessary and excess movement. When you lift your leg, your heel strikes during walkings or you swing your arms or you move them against your torso, your body is doing a whole lot of motions that have just gone along with walking or living. And a lot of this energy is useful for projecting along our bodies but there's a lot of leftover energy that we can recapture just small amounts to power small sensors. Now, this LIG is a graphene foam, which is produced when chemicals are heated on the surface of a polymer or other material with a laser, hence the laser part of their name. And it leaves only these interconnected flakes of two dimensional carbon, which is what graphene is. The lab first made LIG on column polyamide but they extended the technique to make it work with plants, food, treated paper, and even wood. They made polyamide, cork, and other materials into LIG electrodes, and they saw how well they produced energy, and stood up to wear and tear. And they found they got the best results from materials at the opposite ends of the triboelectric series. So you found one from one end, and one from the other. That had enough of a difference between them that they built up a significant amount of static charge. Which is what they needed to generate electricity in the folding configuration the lig from the tribo negative polyamide was sprayed with a protective coating of polyurethane which also by the way acts as a tribo positive material so now you have a negative and positive material you have your electrodes these rub against each other you transfer the electrons and you build up charge and over the time this can be stored in capacitors or batteries now the folding backwards and forwards of this little piece of LIG generated about one kilovolt, and it remained stable for 5,000 bending cycles, which is not bad for a prototype. Now, the best they managed to squeeze out involved a composite of LIG and aluminium. That produced voltages around 3.5 kilovolts, with peak power over 8 milliwatts, and that's pretty huge when you think about it. Now, if you think about injecting one of these static electricity devices into some type of nanosensor, then you could have a smart sensor or smart device on your person, in your clothes, that could help keep tabs on something that you want to track, maybe like inching levels in your blood, or something more frivolous like the Fitbit or the heart rate. Now, all of this could be powered by sensors that are just producing it through walking. And for example, the small nano-generator that they embedded into with this flip-flop transistor was able to store 0.22 millijoules of electrical energy on a capacitor after about a one kilometre walk. And that's enough to power some very small sensors. This is a starting point, but this kind of technology will help us miniaturise all of these monitoring devices and get more personalised information about our own health, which might seem at the moment like fun and games or a latest fad, but for targeted precision medicine can make huge impacts on helping people better control their conditions, for example, for diabetics monitoring their insulin levels. And all the kind of information can be immensely useful for doctors trying to treat patients, as well as being a bit of fun. And this is some great research by Rice University that was published in the journal ACS, Nano, 2019. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Pointe. From finding a way to make aviation and freight less carbon intensive, to quantifying just how bad Bitcoin is for the environment, we also found out about ways to turn our excess movement into energy. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the young scientists of Australia.